At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying his word together. God created us for community, and with community comes conflict. It seems ever-present in our day-to-day lives, from little things to big things. In today's society, cancel culture is prevalent, and when there's conflict in our lives, it can be easy to turn to the ways of canceling one another. Knowing how to resolve conflict lovingly is an essential component of our lives. When we resolve conflicts out of love, we honor Christ. Join us in our new series, Conflicted, Pursuing Peace in a Cancel Culture, where we'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew to see what Jesus has to say about handling conflict. Let's go into Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, and if you're here today, you are blessed to be here today because today we're going to talk about how God wants his children to love and to look out for one another. How should we treat one another within the family of faith? We've decided as a, as a team to go through Matthew 18 to help you and me to think deeply and be reminded for some of us of how the body of Christ, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, ought to love and look out for one another. This passage that we're going to look at, verses 10 through 14 today, reminds me of the home that I grew up in, and maybe it will remind you of the home you grew up in as well. I grew up in a home in which uh, I had uh, wonderful parents. My parents weren't perfect. Uh, let me just correct that because we are filming this. Uh, they, they were almost perfect, uh, but they were very loving. I had great, great parents. And uh, my mom, who is uh, super sweet and always looks out uh, for, for us and our family. She's a matriarch of our family. Uh, she, she just showered us with support and care and even does to this day. But if you wanted to arouse my mother's disappointment, if you wanted to uh, get her upset or even angry, there was one thing that could do it more than anything else, and that was her seeing her children fighting one another. My mother hated to see her children uh, mistreating one another. As a matter of fact, I could still hear my mom's voice in my head saying uh, to uh, t- saying to us, "Look out for one another. Have each other's back. After I'm gone, you'll only have each other. So make sure you take uh, take care of each other." Anybody else uh, raised in a family like that? By a show of hands, anybody else? Uh, maybe three or four of you. The rest of you came from horrible, horrible families. No, I'm just joking. Just joking. But but if you were raised in a family like that, you got a little bit of an advantage because this is certainly the ethos of the text we're going to look at today. As a matter of fact, if you were to ask me what was our family's motto, I would have to say it's crystallized in uh, the words of the great French novelist Alexandre Dumas. Now, maybe you've never heard that name before, Alexandre Dumas, but you certainly know his most famous play and book. It's entitled The Three Musketeers, and there's a famous line that comes out of the three musketeers that many of you will remember. All for one and all for one and one for all. 
That was a home that I was raised in. And that really is what I've tried to ingrain even in my children today, that we are an all for one and one for all family, that we love one another, we care for one another. Now, this shouldn't be unique but it certainly is in a conflict culture. The name of the series that we're in is Conflicted, and it really captures the fact that we are in a divided and polarized age. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced that our culture has reached a tipping point in its polarization. Conflict is no longer something we do, it's who we are. We are a culture of conflict. As a matter of fact, I think conflict is our favorite sport in America, and we play that sport 24 hours a day, seven days a week on social media. That's where the stage is, the field is, where it's all played out. Now, one of the terms that have been coined for the generation we live in is canceled. Cancel culture. To be canceled means that you are boycotted, that you are ostracized, that you are now persona non grata. Nobody is supposed to even mention your name. And those who are sociologists will tell you that the whole cancel culture started in the early 2000s with the rise of social justice movements. That's where it kind of started. Somebody would do something wrong and they would be canceled, but it didn't stay there, it spread through the ethos of our entire culture, and it was New York Times uh, journalist Joel Engel who wrote the article that went viral entitled, Everybody's Canceled in the early 2010s, and that's where we stand today, that if you haven't been canceled, just live long enough and you probably will be. But how are we supposed to treat one another in the body of Christ? What I'm going to argue is that unlike the world, we're not meant to cancel one another or adopt conflict culture and all the tentacles that come along with it, but we're supposed to esteem and pursue one another, to highly esteem and pursue one another because that's what God does for us. Look with me to the text of scripture today that is our main text. And what we're going to see is that God values and pursues each one of us as if there was only one of us. Listen to me say that again. God values and pursues each one of us as if there was only one of us. Now, if that's true of how he sees us and how he pursued you and how he pursued me, What does that mean about how we should treat one another? Well, Jesus says it this way. What does it look like? Well, verse 10 says this. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. This is Jesus' way of saying instead of looking down on one another, we in this family lift up one another. Instead of looking down on each other, this is what the Greek uh, word for despise means. It means to look down upon someone, to condemn someone, to uh, intentionally neglect 
a person because you have devalued them, either because of the mistakes that they've made or because of some other cultural hindrance that is associated with them, maybe their socioeconomic status, whatever the case may be, but it means to look down on one another. Now, this chapter, this entire chapter is a family chapter. How do we know that this is a family chapter? It's because of how the chapter starts. The chapter starts with the question of how does one inherit the kingdom of heaven? How does one enter into the kingdom of heaven? That's New Testament language for how does one become a part of our spiritual family? What does that look like? And so as, as Jesus is explaining what our spiritual family looks like, what it means to be a part of the church, the body of Christ, the family of faith, He uses these words, little ones. Little ones is a term of endearment. It's an affectionate term. He's not so much referring to little children biologically, but he's referring to spiritual children. This is the same language, by the way, that's used throughout the New Testament to refer to you and I. John picks this up in 1 John when he refers to us as little children. Don't be deceived, he says, And it's important for us to see one another in those terms as brothers and sisters in Christ. How do you see the person sitting next to you? How do you see me? How do you see other men and women who profess Christ around the world, even in our own backyard? We should see them as Jesus sees as spiritual family. And if this is a family text, I want you to picture for just a moment a father inviting his kids around to talk about what matters most to his heart and what matters most to the heart of our heavenly father is these words. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. Don't despise each other. Don't treat one another like the world treats each other. We ought to be a different type of family. We are to esteem one another. Instead of looking down on each other, we should be lifting one another up. We all know what it's like to feel the eyes of judgment on us. Anybody ever experienced that before? You walk into the room after you've made a mistake or blown it, You walk into a room and everybody's staring at you in a way that makes you feel like, man, they're looking down on me. That should not be what people feel when they walk through our doors. I want to illustrate this in in, in a couple of different ways. Uh, The first way is this. I was uh, asked by my wife about a year ago if I would go to an event with her. It was a traveling tour for Vincent Van Gogh. Anybody remember this? It came to our town, and I got a chance to go with my wife and look at a lot of art that didn't make a lot of sense to me, but she loved it. And that's what you do when you're in love with somebody. Single guys pay attention. Now, we went to Van Gogh's display, and uh, what I did learn about him is that he's considered to be the father of a particular art form called realism. 
Now, what realism is, is that Van Gogh decided, instead of getting like professional models to model for him as he painted them, what he was going to do is just paint ordinary people that he saw in his town. So the postal worker, he painted them, or the shepherd, he painted them, and they were uh, just as normal as you and I, with all of their blemishes. This is how he did it, but he always added some light into the picture to paint them real but redemptive, real but redeemed. That sounds a lot about how Christ looks at you and me. It reminds me of another moment that I was in with an older brother in Christ, far more mature, far wiser than I am. He invited me to dinner and we're eating dinner and on the walls of this restaurant that we're in is all of these really expensive paintings. I didn't know that. He told me that these were all very expensive paintings. And so he asked me a question and I'll never forget the question. He says, Chris, look at that painting. And I did. And he says, what makes that painting expensive? And I looked at it for a few minutes, y'all. And I got to be honest with you. It was the most underwhelming experience that I've had in such a long time. I looked at this thing and I was totally unimpressed. I was thinking in my mind on a bad day, I think I could do that. (laughs) But yeah, here it is. Expensive, right? And so he asked me the question and I said, I don't know. I don't know what makes this expensive. And he says, look back at it and look in the corner. What do you see? And it was the painter's signature that he had put there. And he says, Chris, that's what makes it expensive. It was signed by the painter. If you and I would have painted that painting, it would be worth pennies or even less. But you put Van Gogh on that painting. You you put Michelangelo on that painting. And now it has value because it's been signed by the painter. Know this, brothers and sisters, that Christ has signed his name on your soul. What gives you and I infinite worth and value is that our names, his his name rather, has been signed on our souls. That he loved us so much that he died for us as if it was only one of us. Your value doesn't change. One more story, if I could. I'll never forget being a teenager and this being illustrated to me. If you want to get teens' attention, use this illustration. The speaker held up a $100 bill and asked the question, who wants this $100 bill? All of us wanted the $100 bill. And he says, how much is this $100 bill worth? And the answer is... Not a trick question. $100, folks. Stay with me. It's worth $100. And then he balled it up. And he says, how much is this $100 bill worth? The answer is still? How many will take a balled up $100 bill? And the church said, amen. And then he dropped it on the ground. He stepped on it. How much is it worth? Still $100. You see, it doesn't change its value even when it's crumbled up, even when it's stepped on. And you don't lose your value, even when life bruises you, even when you're stepped on by life, even when you've made mistakes that has marred the image of God in your life. You don't lose your value. You were still worth going to the cross for. And if Jesus thought you were to die for, if he thought you were so valuable that he signed his name across your soul, then how should I see you? 
No, we don't despise one another. We lift one another up. We esteem one another. And why do we do this? It's because he says this. He says, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Now, this is an interesting way of putting it. But what Jesus is trying to communicate here is the ministry of angels. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 1.14 that angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister God's grace on behalf of those who will inherit eternal life. This isn't so much talking about the guardian angel concept that each one of us are given an own individual angel, but it's talking about the ministry of angels collectively. It's a communal thought that as the body of Christ, God has created an entire class of being called angels specifically to care for us. And all throughout scripture, we see them intervening on behalf of God's redemptive work. They show up with Abraham in the burning bush. They, they show up in uh, the story of Mary and Joseph being told that she would bear a child and this uh, son would be the Messiah who would save the world. They show up throughout all of the, the Holy Scriptures and yes, they show up through our lives as well. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew writers cautions us that we should be careful because many of us have entertained angels unaware. And what is their ministry? Their ministry is to care for us. They are always before the face of the Father. So what does this have to do with the way I should treat you? Well, if they are always before the face of the Father, meaning that he is always mindful of us, then how should we be mindful of one another? The Father is always mindful of you. He is always mindful of what you need of where you are, of your hurts, your disappointments, your prayer requests. In a room full of hundreds of people, he sees you. And if he sees you, how should we see one another? Do not despise one another. Let me illustrate this. Imagine for a moment uh, the, the dream centers. And, and in a few weeks, we'll be able to financially support the dream centers, this community development work that we're doing in the city of Pontiac and future cities on the horizon. One of the great programs that's funded through your generosity for the dream centers are these lookout houses. It's three homes that we now own that are transitional homes, second chance opportunities for young men who need a second chance at life. Now imagine a young man entering into to that program. Now, by the way, when you enter into that live-in intense discipleship program, you get to pick from one of three tracks, either an educational track where we help you to go through college or workforce development track where we help you to get job ready or an entrepreneurial track where we help you to uh, devise a plan and launch a business. How many think that's absolutely awesome? How many think that's absolutely awesome? Now, we have three of those homes now. We have three of those homes now. Now imagine a young man walking through the doors of that program and his life is marred by mistakes of the past. His life is marred by trauma, uh, maybe cycles of sin, things and bad choices that, that he's made that he's not proud of. When he shows up at our doorstep, how should he be viewed? How should we look at him? Should we look at him like culture does, like the world does? As a castaway, a throwaway, 
nothing but the sum total of his mistakes? Or should he feel the eyes of love and redemption and grace and mercy and faith? I believe that he should see himself through the eyes of the Savior who loved him. And not only that young man, but everyone who comes through our doors and every one of you as well. And while we all want this for ourselves, this sermon is not about what you need. It's about what you've received. And in light of what you've received, go forth and give to others. Because Christ has redeemed me and seen me through the eyes of love, I should then love others. Amen? Well, the second motivation he gives us shows up in an interesting verse, verse number 11. I want to talk about this verse because it gives me an opportunity to talk about our doctrine of Scripture. Now, if you have an ESV or an NIV, this verse is footnoted. It doesn't show up in the body of the text. Your text will jump from verse 10 to verse 12. If you have a King James Version or an NASB, it will be in the body of the text. Now, why is that? Let me tell you a little bit about what we believe about Scripture. Christians believe that Scripture is flawless in its original autographs. That's a theological way of saying that we believe that as the scriptures were originally given and penned by the apostles and the prophets, it's without error or mistake. We have a word for this. We call it inerrancy. We also believe that scripture has been wonderfully preserved by God throughout the ages, superintended by the Holy Spirit, whereby which we have reliable translations that are before us. How many thank God for your Bible? How many thank God for that, right? Now, one of the ways that we know that these scriptures that we read are reliable and trustworthy is because we have ancient copies, thousands of them that we call manuscripts. Now, here's the way it works. That whenever a verse of scripture shows up in all or the vast majority of manuscripts, scholars believe with high certainty it should be included in the body of the text. That's true for 99.6% of the scriptures that you have in your Bible. There's about 0.4% that show up in some manuscripts, ancient manuscripts, but not in others. And whenever that happens, there's a debate among scholars on whether or not it should show up in the body of text or not. And so what they do to make sure that there's full transparency is they footnote that so that there will be full transparency. And so there's about 0.4% of the text of Scripture that's footnoted. Here's the good news, that no key doctrine of Scripture, nothing about what we know to be true, about Jesus and his redemptive work in our lives is called into question by the 0.4%. But it is footnoted for us. Now, for the purposes of today, I want you to understand the verse that is footnoted here comes from a saying that Jesus said many times in his ministry. As a matter of fact, if you can keep your finger here and turn to Luke 19, verse number 10, you'll see the same verse that's in Matthew 18, verse number 11. It simply reads as this. It'll be on the screen. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This was something Jesus said again and again and again. So let's agree today for this week uh, with the King James Version that it should be in the body of the text. What is the point of this? The point of this is Jesus is saying, don't despise one another because of my ministry. 
because my very ministry is to pursue and save those who were lost. Same way he chased after you and he chased after me. The same way he is pursuing you today and he pursued me should motivate the way that we pursue others. No, we don't cancel one another. We chase after one another. He goes on to illustrate that even further in the verses that follow. Look at verses 12 through 14, and we're going to see this point, that we in the body of Christ, we don't cancel one another. No, we chase after one another. We don't cancel those who stray from Christ. We chase after them. Look at verse number 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I want you to see this. Because just like that one who leaves the flock, you and I are prone to wander. We're prone to wander for a number of different reasons. The allurement of sin, our own blindness because of conceit and arrogance, because we get offended. How many have wandered away from the flock in this generation because of church hurt? Because a leader didn't treat them the way that they thought they should have been treated, or maybe they felt neglected or overlooked. I don't want to minimize these things, but I do know this, that Satan traffics in these things because he wants nothing more than to see you stray away from the flock. And how do we respond to that? Well, I'll tell you how Jesus responds first. He gives this illustration of a shepherd who has one of his 100 sheep walk away. Now, for those of you who have been in parts of the world where shepherding is still practiced, you will immediately get a visual image. I think about my wife's beloved country of Ethiopia, her family's country of Ethiopia. You ride through Ethiopia and you'll see the mountain ranges, the hill ranges scattered with these shepherds, typically young boys who are walking with their sheep. Sometimes you'll even see it in downtown metropolitan areas. Now, typically they're not alone. And that's important because when you're reading this text and you see the shepherd leaving the 99, it is not assumed that the 99 are then left without a covering. They typically, shepherds will walk together with their flocks together. So there's an assumption here that these 99 are still cared for. But look at the heart of the shepherd, that he goes after the one with unrelenting pursuit until he gets it. And it's because the relationships that shepherds have with their sheep, if you're not a shepherd, it's hard to understand. Maybe the best illustration I could give to you in a Western culture is like a family pet. If a family pet were to walk away, run away, how would you respond would you simply say, well, one less mouth to feed? That dog, that cat was annoying anyway. Would that be how you respond? No, the fact of the matter is, is that you would probably call out the name of the pet. You would then, if no response, get in your car and drive the neighborhood. 
You would ask neighbors, where is this one that I haven't seen, my dog, my cat? I remember a funny story. My cousin lost her dog once, and she did this. And so she was going to neighbors' houses to say, have you seen my dog? And she went to one neighbor's house after a couple of days, and her dog comes running to the front door. <laughs> and she says, that's my dog. He says, no, it's not. I found it. <laughs> that's not how this works. <laughs> but she was not going to be satisfied till she found her dog. This shepherd's not going to be satisfied till he finds his sheep. Jesus is not going to be satisfied until he finds you and me when we wander and we stray. And notice there's no asterisk by this. Notice that it doesn't give us qualification. We don't know why the sheep strayed. Maybe it was distracted. Maybe its own appetites led it astray. I don't know. And I don't know what caused maybe some of us to stray. And I don't know what caused some others that aren't here that should be here. But every single one of us, when we read this, if we read it the way Jesus intended it, should have somebody on our minds right now who because of offense or woundedness or their own sin or bad choices are disconnected. We should be pursuing them. It causes me to think of my friend Abdu Murray, who was raised as a Muslim, came to Christ because there was a group of Christians who kept coming after him. And he kept saying, why are they so patient with me? Why are they so loving to me in spite of how I'm treating them? Let me ask this question. Is there anybody out there in the world who's asking that of you? Is there anybody who's asking, why is he so patient with me? Why is she still pursuing me after all this time, after all the times I've hung up on them or cursed them out or told them, leave me alone? Is there anybody asking the question, why are you so patient with them? You know, at our best, this is exactly what the church is meant to be. We're meant to pursue lost sheep. That's what we're meant to do. In a few weeks, we're going to be able to supply support for Aka John to build this pastoral center. And what's the point in building this pastoral center? It's because our brother sees lost sheep among the Aka people, and he's training up pastors who will be in hot pursuit of them to go and tell them of the love and grace of God, the unrelenting love of God. We're going to be able to fund our campuses. Why? It's because at our best, this is what our campuses do. Throughout 14 communities, we're pursuing people who are being disconnected from God, either because they wandered away or because they have yet to believe. This is what you and I are meant to be. We're meant to be a pursuing people. Why? Because we serve a pursuing Savior who loves each one of us as if there was only one of us. Everyone stand all over the church. This isn't an academic sermon. This is a message that's meant to convict you and me. And as our worship team comes back out again to close us in worship, I want you to think about the mercy of God. How many by the show of hands can say you've received abundant mercy from God? How now shall we live in light of that? And maybe you're here today because God has been chasing after you. 
Maybe you're here today because God has been pursuing you. Don't leave. Don't get this close to salvation and leave without connecting with one of our leaders. There'll be some friends up front. There'll be some in the lobby. But we love to pray with you and help you to get reconnected to the family of faith or to connect for the first time. But know this. None of us can live like this apart from the grace of God at work in our lives. The grace we have received, so grace we should give. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy, the unending mercy of God that continues to pursue us to this day. Help us, in light of that, to pursue others until all have heard, until Christ returns. In Jesus' name, and all God's people say it. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.